and welcome to The Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review and subscribe to The Katie Helper Show. And please become Patreon members at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. This is a special free bonus episode, and it includes an interview we did with Kristen Godsey, the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. And we're releasing it today because it's International Women's Day. And what better way to celebrate that holiday than by talking to someone who's written about that issue? As you'll see, the interview that we recorded with Kristen is from Valentine's Day, but it's just as relevant now as it was then. Kristen Argazzi is a professor of Russian and East European studies and a member of the graduate group in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's an award-winning ethnographer and author specializing in the lived experience of socialism and post-socialism in Eastern Europe. She has written nine books, and her scores of articles and essays have been translated into over a dozen languages and have appeared in publications such as Foreign Affairs, Jacobin, The World Policy Journal, The New Republic, Ms. Magazine, The Washington Post, The Lancet, and The New York Times. Her books include The Red Riviera, Gender, Tourism, and Post-Socialism on the Black Sea, The Left Side of History, World War II, and the Unfulfilled Promise of Communism in Eastern Europe, Red Hangover, Legacies of 20th Century Communism, and her most recent book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. You can find out more about her at kristengodsey.com, and you can also listen to her podcast, AK47, Selections from the Works of Alexandra Kalantai. And my co-host on this episode is Jack Allison, the host of Jack AM on Twitch. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good, you? (laughs) I'm okay. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. And um, I wanted to just take this opportunity to ask you about, uh, well, the premise of your book, of course, but also get into a discussion about like how the commodification of love and sex and desire relates to um, Valentine's Day. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, we could start, though, with um, why did you write? I mean, you've written several books, but why did you write this book um, about sex under socialism? Yeah. So this book kind of happened. I you know that sounds really weird. It kind of happened by mistake. So right. what what there's a weird story that has to do with a 2006, 2007 documentary film that was made by a German filmmaker called in English do communists have better sex? That was literally the name of the documentary film. <laughs> and I was a I was a visiting professor and fellow at the Freiburg Institute for Advanced Studies in Germany uh, in 2014-2015. And the they have this after hours series where German academics are wonderfully like relaxed. They sit around and drink wine right. and then like somebody gets up and like talks about something kind of interesting and hopefully a little controversial. And then we just have a conversation. So I was asked, because I do, you know, I have this interest in Eastern Europe and I'm also, I also do gender stuff and I've been doing research in the region for more than 20 years to sort of show some clips and discuss this film. So the problem of course about this was that most of the members of the audience were West German men. And this film essentially makes the argument more or less that like East German women had better sex and that by extension, that means that East German men, I guess, are better in bed, right? Right. So anyway, it was so terribly uncomfortable for me to stand up in this thing and and make this conversation. So I ultimately wrote a little essay about that experience talking about Cold War memory and why we have these negative ideas about communism. And then... That essay appeared in this book, Red Hangover, Legacies of 20th Century Communism, which was supposed to come out for the centennial of the Bolshevik Revolution in October of 2017. And right before the book was coming out, at the same time, the New York Times was doing a series called the Red Century Series. And it was a series of essays reflecting on the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution and so, you know, they got in touch with the people at Duke University, but I don't exactly know what happened. And I, they asked for an excerpt of this chapter, if I could write an essay that sort of summarized some of the key arguments of that chapter. Anyway, wow, that blew up in my face wow, yeah. <laughs> in a huge way. Um, I was really, you know, I'd never written for the New York Times before. And I was really just sort of like, okay, I'm just going to send off this column and whatever. I've been toiling away in 
relative obscurity for a long time doing this like weird boutique research on women's rights in Eastern Europe. And anyway, so about a month, a month after the op-ed came out, I got a call from a publisher in New York who said like, Hey, do you think you could expand this argument into a book? And of course I wasn't really keen to do it except for that. A lot of my academic colleagues and, you know, quite a lot of people who were just sort of hating on the the op-ed basically said that in my thousand words, I had not fully substantiated all of the claims that I made in the argument. So the idea for the book was that I sort of made a deal with the publisher. I said, okay, they really wanted the title. I was a little more dubious about the title because I feel like it's kind of clickbaity. And, um, but but the but the um, exchange was that I got an unlimited number of endnotes to actually put in the studies that I'm referring to. All of these studies that were done on not only women's rights in Eastern Europe, women's issues, but also sexology and relative um, sexual satisfaction between East and West before and after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it sort of blew up in my face, um, but it was a wonderful kind of opportunity for me to kind of look back at. 20 years of research that I've been doing in the region on like, what did these East European countries do differently um, so that they had these very different outcomes when it came to not only women's economic independence, which is the subtitle of the book, but also, you know, women's um, personal uh, and romantic satisfaction. Yeah. um, And so you basically, the barter was that like you were able to... um give it a clickbaity title, but then like really nerd out on the actual like <laughs> documentation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, cause that was the, you know, it's just, I, I've like, I've published lots of books before and I've always published with academic presses. And so it was an interesting experience to sort of work with like a marketing team and how they were going to position the book and all that kind of stuff that happens, as you say, in this capitalist system that we live in. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they really well, wanted, wanted... That was Bodhi. That was that Bodhi. Yes. Quoting Amanda Elevating her voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, well, because of course, when you write an op-ed for the New York Times, you never get to choose your title. You don't even know what your title is until mm-hmm. it appears in print, right? So so that was the title that the New York Times gave it. And then that they wanted to keep, the publisher wanted to keep that title so that, you know, I don't know, people would remember it. They liked the title or whatever. So so yeah, the idea was, I sort of fought back with a little bit and then I, but then I couldn't come up with anything that was quite as catchy. Um, and, but, what but were they end, like an interrogate with, with an inter towards an interrogation? Yeah. Of, yes, exactly. Well, I'm trying to think of what it would have been. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it would have, it would have not at all sounded as, a, yeah. you know, so yeah. what I think is really fun about the book, especially because of the, you know, various people that I've talked to people who have read it and will say, God, I thought this was going to be like a really light read. And then they pick up the book and it's like study after study after study after study with all these footnotes. And that was the other thing that I argued with them about was that I had footnotes sprinkled throughout and they wanted me, or they wanted me for every paragraph to have one note at the end of the paragraph with all of the citations. So that was another compromise that I had to make. But I think that was okay because if you see the book, right, the, um, I think it's like 200 pages or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm but opening it up. 20 pages the- of it is endnotes. What's the best, which is always fun when you're reading something and you get, you realize that's shorter than you think, even when it's a great book like this, but what's the best website for me to open the, the, like, obviously it's Amazon, there's an Amazon, but it's, um, nation, is it nation books at first or was it? Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was originally nation books. Now it's changed its name to bold type books. uh, Okay. So let me just, is that, that's probably the best way to do it. Right. Um, that's the link on your website. I should actually go through your website. I have. Yeah, I I think so. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Okay, so um, sorry, I just wanted to, I got distracted because I want to show people because the book cover is really, really cool. And who who chose that? They did, of course. They did, okay. Of course, good, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really fun. The So the, there are various different iterations of the book cover. Uh, the original version, version that was an interesting. I know, and when, <laughs> when you keep saying it blew, blew up in my face, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I know, yeah. it's Valentine's okay. Day, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so the the original is this. It's not this one. This is the Russian version. It's this woman with the j- javelin, right? Um, and but then when they reissued the paperback, they did it with like a very subtle rose. Yeah, that's the original. Oh, yeah, I like yeah. this. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
Yeah. And then the one below that is the British cover, which is similar, but yeah. a little bit, you know, more subtle, I suppose. Yeah. Less boldly Soviet. Yeah. Then right. those are the other things, but yeah, but like different, different, um, you know, this is the Czech one, Let's which see. is just a simple let kind me, of flower. Um, oh, let me, so, let me stop sharing so that I can see. Can I see that one? Yeah. Czech? Oh, interesting. Yeah. It has so, like an American beauty vibe to it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and, and that lots of different foreign publishers have reinterpreted the cover in different ways. So it's been really fun to see that as well. Yeah. And so what did you discover in your research and how much of your research did you already have before working on the book? And how much did you then do once you were asked to write this book? Yeah. So, you know, I literally have been teaching a class at university called Sex and Socialism since the fall of 2002. Wow. So 18 years. Yeah. So I, I mean, so multiple generations of undergraduate students have gone through this undergraduate class that I teach, which is sort of an introduction to, you know, the broader leftist ideas, because I, I actually start pre-Marx, I start with the utopian socialist and I, I go all the way, you know, to people like Colin Tai and then into the 20th century. But um, I actually had most of the material pretty much at my fingertips because I've been teaching, you know, I just basically had to go through my lecture notes and figure out what I wanted to include. I did spend a lot of time trying to update things and doing a lot of research on the Scandinavian countries because I thought the Scandinavian countries were a really good comparator. And, um, and then some of the more very specific sexological surveys, I'm not a hundred percent, like I'm, I'm not a sexologist. Uh, I have colleagues in Eastern Europe who study sexology, anthropologists and sociologists who study sexology and East European sexology. So I was able to rely very heavily on their research and the research of other colleagues in Eastern Europe. But I, um, I, you know, I wrote the book pretty quickly once it, once it, happened. It took me a while to decide to do it, but once I decided to do it, I basically just sort of sat down and kind of focused and gathered up all of this material and just sort of put it together. And, you know, they also had a very strict word limit. So I couldn't really, you know, write the definitive tome on everything you ever wanted to know about East European sexuality right. and women's rights. Was that, was that liberating in a weird way? Because I feel like as an academic, there's like so much pressure and expectation and um, not even, I mean, desire to be as thorough and, uh, as, as possible. And then you kind of can't be yeah. with a book like this, right. For this audience. Exactly. And you know, it, it was hard. I will say that it was my first real attempt to just write a straight non-specialist book where, you know, I'm sitting there and explaining really sort of basic things that I think are, you know, that right. other people should know, but they not necessarily, you know, the, 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 the thing about, teaching university is that like, I keep getting older, but my students remain 18 to 22. Right. And every year I teach them, I think, how do you not know this already? I've been teaching this for 18 years. Right. So, right. so it was, um, it was a challenge, but you're right. I think it was strangely liberating in the sense that I just had to be succinct. I had to make an argument or I had already made the argument. I needed to substantiate the argument with all of the empirical evidence that I could muster and I had to do that without getting distracted by, oh, let me tell you about this other really interesting thing right. on the side. Yeah. Um, and so what are the, the I guess, the, the most important things that you think people need to know um, that, you know, they'll obviously learn about in more detail in your book. But what are the things that surprise you that because they're not more, um, they're not as much part of common knowledge as you think? Right. So I think the one thing that especially, and I speak very specifically about the United States because right. the Europeans have a, a little bit better sense of the, the, the variety, but in the United States, we have a very narrow understanding of what communism was in the 20th century in Eastern Europe. And people tend to reduce that entire experience, you know, which is from like Albania all the way up to the Baltics and across from, you know, Budapest all the way to Vladivostok. There's this huge area over a long period of time in the Soviet Union, almost 70 years, and then 40, 45 years in Eastern Europe, they tend to reduce everything to the 30s and Stalin and the gulags and the right. famines. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that I really try to do in the book is say, look, that is such a reductive view. We need to really look at all of this different nuance. There were different policies, different styles of socialism that, was be that were being practiced in Eastern Europe. You had self-managing socialism in Yugoslavia. You had what they called goulash communism in Hungary. 
the Soviet Union, you know, before Stalin took power was very liberal and then became really conservative. And then after Stalin died, there was de-Stalinization. It became quite liberal again in certain ways. Romania was awful. Albania was awful. So, so the first thing I want people to know is that this is a very diverse region. The second thing people don't realize is how nostalgic many people are for Eastern European state socialism in this part of the world to this day, even 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall or the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. So, and then the big question is, well, why? What's going on? And, right. you know, and you're talking about the people who experienced it, the people who lived under it. Yeah. yeah. And not only the people who lived under it, which I think is real, this to me, this is, you know, something that I study is there, there's a kind of vicarious nostalgia for people who were born after 89, right. but who had parents who grew up, you know, they look at their old family photo albums or their home movies from their grandparents or parents' days, and they're like, wow, this actually doesn't look as bad as everybody's telling us it was. Now, there, there were like really lots of negative things. I'm not trying to whitewash that sure. at all, mm -hmm. but it is interesting that there's this persistence of nostalgia. And so when you start to scratch at the surface of, well, why are people nostalgic? One of the things that you hear over and over and over again is that people say our relationships were more authentic. Mm. Our lives were less commodified. We were less stressed. We were less harried. We, you know, had more free time. We had, you know, more affective resources to share with the people in our lives, even among our colleagues, even when we were at work. And that that's something that like capitalism when it came, it like obliterated this so profoundly. And so as a social scientist, one of the things that I do and that social scientists do when they want to look at how to compare two economic systems and the impacts that they have on people's lives, because people were writing about the fact that capitalism was bad for our love lives way back in the middle of the 19th century. And so right. the question is, is how do we do an empirical test? Well, we look at, we look for a natural experiment. And it turns out that you know, Germany was one country in 1945, and then it got divided. And pretty much one side was capitalist, one side was communist. There were other, you know, differences, but for the most part, they're the same. And they're divided for 40 years by this, um, 45 years by this ideology, and then they come back together. Let's look at the differences. And that's what's so fascinating about the research that we have is that it really does show that again, you know, using largely self-reported data, but consistently studies that have been done both before and after 89 show that people show higher levels of satisfaction and um, contentment and joy in their personal lives in the East compared to the West. And I thought that one of the um, most interesting parts of this is that you talk about how the end of the Cold War also had negative effects for the West in general because the gains around women's rights, around employment, education that were achieved by um, the, uh, uh, you know, socialist or communist governments pressured the United States into doing that. And we saw that a lot with the civil rights movements. Right. So yes. uh, that was it was like embarrassing the United States into being better on issues of racism. Um can you talk about how that that played out in gender? Yeah. So, yeah. So Mary Dudziak has this wonderful book called Cold War Civil Rights, which precisely talks about the Cold War context of the U.S. civil rights movement. And the, the book that I published in 2019, it's called Second World, Second Sex. And it does a sort of similar thing for the women's movement. So like very specifically, until 1957, Western male leaders largely thought of women's emancipation and arguments for women's emancipation as a communist front, right? So that like, communist appeal to women by convincing them that they would be happier if they could work outside the home or whatever. And so there was a, you know, there's a wonderful book by Elaine Tyler May called Homeward Bound, which really talks about the kind of traditional American family as a Cold War artifact, especially in the 50s. But then in 1957, with the launch of the first Sputnik, Sputnik satellite, the American government goes, how the hell did they do that? <laughs> right. I mean, it's just a metal ball around right. the earth that's beeping. Right. But it scared right. the it scared people a lot. And one of the immediate um, paranoias that the American government had was that the Soviets were using women, that they had double the number of, of scientists, double the number of mm. scientific geniuses because they were identifying right. girls and giving them scientific education at an early age. 
1958, the United States government passes the National Defense Education Act. And that is a piece of legislation that specifically earmarks money for the education of girls in math and science and engineering. Title IX, the, um, the legislation that we have that allows, you know, that gives federal dollars for girls and women's sports is also a reaction to the fact that the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries kept beating the United States at the Olympic medal count because of women's sports. We didn't have enough female athletes to compete against these amazing Soviet women who kept just like clearing the decks of the gold medals. So I can give you a lot of other examples. Uh, 1961, the first uh, presidential commission on the status of women, which was signed by executive order 10980, I believe, by John F. Kennedy. In the preamble of that executive order, Kennedy cites national security as a reason why we need to think about women's rights. So so we were scared. There was a a fear that if the Soviets mobilized their women into the labor force and they were able to use women's uh, intelligence, another great example, if you guys have been watching The Queen's Gambit, is Soviet women's chess. In the international um, realm, the Soviet women were amazing at chess. They, They just couldn't be beaten. So So there are all sorts of ways in which, to the extent that American men in particular, but I would say a sort of brand of conservative 50s, uh, because obviously this wouldn't be true of people who are affiliated with the left, right? Like, you know, the the CPUSA, all these people who are purged by Huwak and McCarthy. But but the kind of conservative traditional Americans for a long time argued that women just were naturally not good at things like math or science or they weren't naturally competitive enough to to be athletes, or they were naturally not X or naturally not Y. And then when the Soviet Union actually did it, either you had to argue, and by the way, some of them did, that Soviet women weren't really women. (laughs) There's something (laughs) unique about what was going over there. Or you had to admit that maybe women could be really good mathematicians or chess players or Mm -hmm. athletes. And it's kind of like the, the options there are that we were wrong or they can be really good at that. It sucks for women and womanhood and our definitions, but it's worth it because of national security to overcome, you know. Exactly. To embrace mm-hmm. this unnatural. This um, unnatural thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is women working outside the home and in male professions. Yeah. Right. And can you talk about some of the the sex studies in terms of satisfaction and, um, you know, what, what t- the studies that you cite, which... Uh, support the claim that sex is better in socialist countries for women. Okay, so so the the studies that are specifically cited in the book are a series of studies that were done. The first in 1988, so prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall, by a, a sexologist in East Germany called Kurt Stark and his colleagues, and then they because of the results they were replicated after 89. So the first thing I want to say is that there's always a problem with self-reported data. So obviously people are answering these questions. And one of the critiques of these studies is that the women who were living under communism didn't answer truthfully or whatever. But But after 89, they were free to answer as they wanted. And there were similar results. The study was um, done over and over again in a variety of different ways. So the actual numbers are fascinating. So the um, two proxy questions for sexual satisfaction the first is, uh, the last time did you, when you had sex, were you happy? Um, and, you know, did you feel happy? And, you know, so this is kind of a weird, you know, a weird way of saying, was it good or not? And I um, don't have that number right in front of me. But the, the other, um, which I'll find it in a second. Oh, yeah, yeah. here it is. GDR women. So the last time you had sex, were you happy? So GDR women said that 82% of the time, the last sexual encounter that they had, they were happy. Compared to women in the West, so this would be the FRG, the the, the West Germans, only 52% said they were happy. discrepancy, yeah. That's a huge discrepancy, okay? Mm -hmm. And then they get a little bit deeper into, again, these double entendres, so to speak. (laughs) Um, so the second way they asked the question is, did your last sexual encounter leave you feeling satisfied? That's how they asked the question. And here, um, 74% of West German men said yes, and 75% of West East German men said yes. So not a big difference on the men, but look at the difference on the women. 84% of, um, oh wait, hold on. I got to redo that. Oh. So 
GDR women, 75% said yes. GDR men, 74% said yes. So about equal. Sure. With with West German men, it's 84% of men said, yeah, I was satisfied after my last sexual encounter, but only 46% of West wow. German women. So that's less than half just, yeah. of West German women compared to 75% of East German women. So this short, sort of shows you that there's something going on. But the other thing that I think is really interesting is preferences for marriage. So let's say you're dating, you're on the market, whatever, and you are having, you know, um, partners. What what percentage of the people that you're dating or that you might date, and of course, this is all heterosexual data that bears, um, you know, they, that was, uh, this. these studies focus specifically on um, opposite sex couples. So in the East uh, of Germany, the communist part of Germany, um, 73% of women and 74% of men said that they were interested in getting married. Like if they found the right person, they would be cool with that, Right. Whereas in the um, Western part, the capitalist part of Germany, 71% of women said that they would be interested in getting married, but only 57% of men. Wow. Hmm. So, you know, you have these really interesting discrepancies, which means that something is, there's something there that is making not, maybe not the actual experience, but the, the way you reflect on that experience, if we're talking about self-reported data, significantly different in the East that is socialist compared to the West that is capitalist. And so what I tried to do in the book is to try to tease out what exactly was going on in, in, in that data. And um, it's not only Germany. So my I have a colleague, Katarzyna uh, Lishkova, who just wrote a book called Sexual Revolution, Socialist Style, which is all about the sexual revolution in Czechoslovakia before 1968. And then I have another colleague, Agnieszka Kozianska, who's Polish. She's also an anthropologist. And she writes a really wonderful book that's just come out in English about Polish sexology and how Polish socialist era sexologists treated sexual, what we call dysfunctions, very differently than they were treated in the West. And in some ways, she makes this argument that the Polish sexologists were way more progressive than in the uh, capitalist West. Okay, and what what does that um, do to? Yeah. Okay. So that's a so so we tend in the West to think of sexuality as an individualized thing, right? And this comes in large part from Masters and Johnson and the sort of standard four stage sexual response theory, which ultimately is all about the right kinds of stimulation. It's like about technique. And it lends itself to pharmaceuticalization very easily. Right. And so if you have a, you know, an issue, like there's got to be a pill somewhere for it. Um, whereas in the socialist East, and particularly in Poland, where she did all of this really interesting research, she actually herself went through the training to become a sexologist. They think of sex and sexuality and um, intimate relations as being embedded in social relations. Right. And so in a larger political economy. So if you have an issue in your personal life, it's not just about you or your partner. It's about the society that you're living in and whether or not that society is a healthy society. And so that's a very different way of thinking about people's um, intimate lives. And what that means is that if you're a sexologist, you not only have to study you know, medicine and psychiatry or psychology, but you also have to know a little bit of philosophy, a little mm. sociology, a little anthropology. Interestingly, because Poland was Catholic, a little theology. So they were oh, way right. more well-rounded and they really thought like, look, if people are exhausted and unhappy and if they are worried about the future and paying their bills or whatever, like who's gonna be happy? Like the world doesn't stop at your bedroom door. So you have to really think about people as, embedded in a wider net of social relations rather than just individual units that you're treating in a very particular pharmaceutical way. And so why are men, I mean, why is there such a discrepancy between men and women in the West in a way that there isn't in the East? And what does that tell us about the effects of, of capitalism on relationships? I'm just grabbing one thing I dropped. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it, this is a really interesting conversation to have on Valentine's Day, obviously, because I think that the big difference, again, as, and this has been discussed for a long time in, in 
socialist theory going back to people like Flora Tristan and August Bebel in Germany and Clara Zetkin and Alexander Kollontai and even Friedrich Engels to a certain ex- extent, is that under capitalism, women are, and women's sexuality, are commodities. And, and increasingly, like in late capitalism, where I would say we are now, our affections, our attentions, and our emotions are also being commodified in really extreme ways. And so the argument has always been that under socialism, when people are like the value of your personhood doesn't have a monetary sign attached to it, you're going to relate to people in a very different way. And the ethnographic research around things like friendships and um, uh, just wider social relations really bears this out, that, that after 89, people really feel that, you know, everybody is hustling and nobody has time for anybody anymore. And there's this competitiveness and it's sort of a zero sum dog eat dog world. And of course you also have massive out migration in this part of the world. There are all sorts of sort of social and structural problems that we could talk about. But I think it's really interesting that like, for instance, they didn't have Valentine's day in the Soviet union. It, it comes to Russia in the nineties and it's, it's a super hyper commodified version of respecting or like paying attention to your loved ones rather than what they used to celebrate, which was sort of International International Women's, Women's Day right. on March 8th. Yeah. Right. Uh, where you would buy women flowers and chocolates, but it wasn't right. just your lovers. It was your colleagues. It was your mother. It was your female friends. It was a much wider appreciation of just society-wide for women than just like this person that you were either romantically involved with or want to be romantically involved with. And I think that the discrepancy between why it is that West German men don't want to get married as much as West German women is that it's an economic relationship in West Germany. And so West German men know that they're going to have to support these women and women know that they're going to be supported. So there's an imbalance. Whereas in the East, you can see that everybody sort of has their, they've come to the relationship with their own sort of level of social security. So marriage is something that you want to do because you want to spend time with that person. You want to formalize Mm -hmm. that relationship. Not because you actually want an economic relationship out of this person. Right. Or, or, and it really lets people's individual psychological, personal baggage run the show instead of just financial, <laughs> you know, economic needs, which is a nice thing also. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, kind of. But um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I was saying this the other day, I think on the stream that, you know, as I, I, of course, I love the idea of men, of women and men, like, sharing drink you know footing the bill going dutch or whatever but um that i I'm, I'm fine with a man paying for my drinks or dinner because it's reparations because we live in the system yeah. where women make less money but sure. um it, i could imagine that could be i'm just trying I, in my i have something in my head now this like comedic sketch that i have not sketched out but something where someone constantly uses socioeconomic stuff to be like to get away with with things yeah. um <laughs> But I, I don't think that's a real a real problem. But um, and what was the most surprising thing that you found? Like, did anything was anything not what you kind of thought it would be in your research? I mean, so the the really surprising thing to me was the discovery of sexual economics theory and how the conservatives in this country have used that. Um, so I was aware of all of these sort of 19th century and early 20th century socialist texts or thinking, talking about heterosexual courtship as a monetary exchange or as a market transaction. What I was not expecting was to find a paper published, I think, in 2002 or 2003 by these two, um, I believe they're social psychologists, talking about sex as an economic exchange, right? And the way that that market works in the United States. And so they were basically admitting that under capitalism, this is actually how it works. Right. You know, they, they didn't, they didn't realize that they were like basically being so, you know, 19th century socialists. They right. were quite seriously just talking about, you know, um, the way that markets work and how if, you know, and then they, they have this really weird argument about the, you know, the price of, of sex. So they actually go and they say, okay, so in societies where women have a lot of economic independence, so Scandinavia are the perfect examples of this, right? Then women, the, the, they say the, the price of sex is low, right? So women can basically have partners 
and they their economic um, situation is not dependent on those partners, right? So they basically tend to choose their partners on the basis of love and attraction right. and mutual affection or whatever. And they also, um, you know, they tend to, there's people have more sex, right? The, right. Whereas in societies where women have no educational opportunities or professional opportunities, no rights whatsoever, then the price of sex is really high. It's marriage. Like basically mm, right. you can't have sex with a woman unless you marry her because it's like her most valuable asset. Right. Right. And so they, they actually do that. They, they go and they get this like independent sex survey and, and then they also uh, sort of um, try to correlate that with a measure of gender equality. And they basically come up with this argument that says in societies where women have more economic independence, then, you know, sexual cultures are more liberal and people are, you know, generally a lot less uptight about this. Whereas in societies where women have no rights whatsoever or no birth control or no access to abortion, then the price of sex is really high because if you get pregnant, you're stuck with caring for the baby and you need a man to support you. So weirdly, conservatives in this country have taken that as an argument for getting rid of abortion and contraception and making sure that women don't have rights so that we can go back to having like a 1950s leave it to beaver kind of happy family. Yeah. And that to me, like, because all of my research is in Eastern Europe, I never really thought about the American side of things. And so that was really surprising to me. I shouldn't have been really surprising, but it was just surprising to me how unaware these Americans were of this much longer socialist history around these questions and that they were essentially just admitting that, yeah, under capitalism, right, sex is going to be a commodity. Whereas if you live in a society with lots of social safety nets, then sex becomes less valuable as a commodity because women have other opportunities to actually pay their rent and their bills. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I remember, you know, Bernie Sanders explaining one of the many, obviously healthcare is a human right, but he was he would always say that, you know, if if you have health care, you don't have to stick with a job that you don't like just because right. you have insurance, um, just because it gives you health care, you know, health insurance. And and if you quit it, you'll be, you know, vulnerable to illness and death. Um, so it's similar with right. Like you, you'll stay in a job, you'll stay in a relationship. Um, yeah. I mean, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a study and for women 64 and under in this country, who, so, you know, obviously you get 65, you get Medicare, but if if you don't have Medicare yet, I think a quarter of American women get access to health insurance through their spouse. Yeah. One in four. So that means that if you are in a relationship that is abusive, you know, or unhappy or somehow otherwise unsatisfying, and you need access to medical care, you can't leave that person unless you want to go out and, you know, buy insurance on the exchange, which we all know is, is very expensive. So, so yeah, it's it's a real trap for people, not to mention that a lot of people literally get married for health insurance right. Right? Mm-hmm. in this country. Whereas in other countries where, you know, every just by virtue of you being a citizen, you get access to a doctor, medical care if you need it. That that actually gives you a lot more personal freedom. And that's the other thing. Like with people you know, people who are kind of haters of the idea of any kind of expanded social safety nets, they always make this argument that it's going to reduce liberty or reduce freedom. Right. But if you take five seconds and you think about it, right, you're not trapped in your job. You're not trapped in your relationship. If you, if you have portable health insurance that follows you wherever you go, how is that reducing your liberty? It's Mm -hmm. weird. It's a weird argument. Yeah. What do they mean? I mean, it's so, it's kind of embarrassing, but now that you framed it that way, I'm like, wait, what are they even claiming? It's because what taxes make you not free? Taxes make you not free. There's a fear that you will have fewer choices of providers, that there'll be death right, without, panels, yeah, right? They, right. They, you know, they make all of these really complicated arguments that for those of us that are lucky enough to have employer-based healthcare that is decent, right, that 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 it'll be gone and we'll have to wait in like Soviet-style right, right. bread lines in yeah. order to see a doctor. That's the fear-mongering that comes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the show, or beginning of our interview, about how people have this stereotype of the Cold War, right? right? In fact, you know, right now I'm teaching a, a class on um, population and public health in Eastern Europe, I, you know, at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're talking about the old Samashko system, which was the old universal healthcare system in these Eastern Bloc countries, and then what happened after 89 when they decided to go more commercial. You know, and for my students, this is like a huge eye-opener for them because they just never quite realized 
you know, they've just read a paper that was done by the London School of Tropical Hygiene, like a very legitimate place that looked at all these healthcare reforms in Southeastern Europe. And they said, you know, actually, it turns out that people were probably better off with their old communist healthcare system than they are with what came afterwards. And that's a shocker to a lot of people, just in terms of health outcomes, right? Not, we're not talking about ideology. We're just talking about actually, you know, getting people to see doctors and be treated for illnesses that they have. Right. And what is your, I mean, a lot of what you discuss in the book is kind of, um, you kind of undo myths about uh, the Cold War, about communism, about the way, you know, how how people don't understand the diversity um, among the kind of leftist, you know, from Stalinist to Scandinavia, that whole, um, if you want to call it that, that whole spectrum. So what are are the things that you think people really need to know um, about this legacy? Um, Like, what are the biggest myths that you think need to be busted? Yeah, well, I mean, so the first thing I want to say, right, is that I think, you know, many people, when they hear about the Holodomor or the purges or the Gulag, you know, sometimes there's this knee-jerk reaction that, oh, that's just anti-communism. And that's not the right reaction. There, Those things happen, yeah. right? We should not deny the crimes and, yeah. and the atrocities that mm-hmm. were committed in this part of the world. So, so the first thing is, is that there's obviously some truth. There were consumer shortages. There were travel restrictions. The, you did have the secret police. All of those things are real. Right. However, the biggest problem that we have is what about the things that were actually positive? Right. And there were some. And what happens, I think, is, you know, Daniel Kahneman talks a lot about system one, system two thinking and how we don't like nuance. Nuance right. is, it com- confuses us. And we really need to have nuance when we talk about the 20th century experience of Eastern European state socialism, because a lot of people who lived that are still alive. And first of all, as you know, as again, as an ethnographer, I talk to these people and they tell me, you know, it really wasn't that bad. Mm. So either they have complete false consciousness or right. they've been brainwashed or something. Um, but I have to listen to what they say because that's my job. But the second thing is, is, you know, we can actually look empirically at outcomes. We can look at, you know, certain kinds of, uh, indicators about life expectancy. So just to give you an example of a really concrete number that I was just talking to somebody about recently, I think in 1910, before the first world war, average Russian life expectancy was 33 years old compared to France, and it was like 49, okay? And so that's a really low, like you, you died when you were 33, yeah. the average, right? If you were born in 1910 uh, in Tsarist Russia. By 1970, 70, right? The average life expectancy in the Soviet Union was 68, and in France, it was 71. So the Soviets, despite everything that was wrong with their country, managed to close the life expectancy gap with France to within three years, wow. right? From, wow. a, from a 16-year gap to a three-year gap in, in 50, 60 years, right? That's pretty impressive, not to mention the industrialization. You know, so again, I don't want to paper over the problems, sure. but when we look at things like women's rights, when we look at athletics, when we look at chess, when we look at music or the performing arts, when we look at literature— there are a lot of things that came out of the East, and that's independent, okay, of speaking about the effect that having a real ideological enemy on the world stage. I heard you mention Wallerstein yeah. earlier, world systems theory, right? So if you have an ideological enemy, enemy, sorry, it puts pressure on right. Western governments to kind of, you know, step up for their workers and their women and their minority populations in a way that they don't have to if there's no ideological threat. So so that I mean, so I'm saying independent of the Cold War impacts, there right. were actual things that they got right. So when I write about this part of the world, what I want people to know is like, you look, we can get rid of the bad things yeah. and keep the good things like the polyclinic system, right? There were things that worked really well and we could adapt them and repurpose them because we're facing challenges today in the 21st century, like the pandemic, for instance, but also climate change and possibility of automation and um, extreme inequality, all problems that the market cannot solve. So if the market cannot solve it, we need to have alternative discourses. And the last thing I want to say is I think that the experiences of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe are often used as a cudgel 
to shut down social dreaming in the West. Right. So people just say, well, if we have universal healthcare, we're all going to end up in the gulags, right? <laughs> right? It's a slippery slope to the famines yeah, right, and the purges. Right. And, and that's where I think it's really important to push back. And I don't, I don't, I don't think we have to whitewash the past. Yeah. I, that's a problem. But I do think we need to push back and we actually need to say that there were some good things that they did. And we recognized them during the Cold War. I can show you any right. number of American government reports, federal government reports, talking about the, 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 right, the things that the Soviets were doing well um, and how we could improve and do them better. But, um, but in the last 30 years, we've kind of erased all of that nuance and just made it one big Stalinist hellish nightmare. Um, and so it's very difficult to talk about. And I can tell you that it's very difficult to talk about. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you is like, what is, so two final questions. Um, one is what the takeaways are, how we can apply these things. And also like, given how, you know, how much anti-communism, uh, infiltrates, you know, everything, uh, did you like even the fact that you're doing research like this? Like, did you come from a left family? Uh, did you how did you arrive at this place where you're actually looking at things like this without condemning them? This is it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> it's a safe space. Um, I was a I was a I was a model United Nations dork in yeah. high school. Um, wow. And I mean, I was like very serious about model United Nations. And I was, this was in the eighties during the Reagan era. And when I, um, so if you're a model United Nations dork, like the thing that you want more than anything else is to win the gavel. And the best way to win the gavel is to be a country with veto power on the security council. So there are only five of those. And since my model United Nations club was mostly dominated by boys if we got France, UK, or the US, they would always take those countries. And back then in the 80s, China was boring because they always abstained. So the only opportunity for me to ever get on the Security Council to win a gavel, which was like my little nerdy dream, was to be the Soviet Union. And so in the 1980s, it wasn't easy to find information about the Soviet Union. So I would go off to the library and read US News and World Report, and I would find Engels and Marx and try to read as much stuff as I could in the original. And so in the process of reading it so that I could better represent these countries and their foreign policy on, you know, a mock UN conference, I started to realize, wow, God, this isn't as crazy as I thought it was. A lot of this is actually making um, sense to me. And it was like this sort of slow slide into, oh my gosh, this is making a lot of sense to me. And it, you know, I, I, it was really kind of a weird autodidactic issue. And then, you know, to be fair, I went to UC Santa Cruz and oh, then yeah. I went to UC Berkeley. Yeah, I got my slow. PhD at Berkeley. Yeah. So <laughs> I was a public school kid and I, you know, ended up in Northern California where, yeah, guess what? There are a lot of, a lot of lefty people. Right. And so I came into my politics, you know, um, pretty young, but, but then I, in the, I was in Eastern Europe in June of 1990, right after the wall fell and before the Soviet Union had fallen. And I traveled throughout the region and I realized that this was like one of the most exciting places that I wanted to be. So when I went back to grad school to do my dissertation field work uh, in, the, in the later 90s, I went to, I, I think I first went to Bulgaria in 97 or 98, and then I did field work in 99 and 2000. And that was like at that moment of the transition where everything was like the wild, wild East. And so, yeah. And then I got married to a Bulgarian and I have a half Bulgarian daughter and, you know, the story, the, the story right. goes, but yeah, right. it's not a family background. In fact, I have very little, I have none, zero, I think no East European background whatsoever. Oh, yeah. I'm like Puerto Rican Persian. So it's like a bizarre. Oh, wow. Mixture. That's cool. Yeah. Puerto Rican Persian. Yeah. Have to come up with a food for that. Yeah. Not easy. <laughs> no. Cause there's pizza bagel that I made up potato famine latke for my Irish Jewish friends. Oh, there you go. So Persian go. Puerto Rican. That's all right. We'll, we'll work on yeah. that. Um, yeah. I don't know. Really so maybe like some kind of like plantain kebab or something. Yeah. Plantain kebab. Yeah. I like that. Um, actually, and it sounds really good. Um, yeah, and yeah. what about in terms of politics? Is your family progressive, leftist, right wing, centrist, mixed, apolitical? Uh, so, you know, that's a, it's a long story. Okay. My, 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 um, my grandmother, you know, has like a third, has a third grade education. She's still alive. She's in her nineties and she was a union. She was a, a garment oh, worker in right. New York. And so she was a member of the international lady, ladies, oh, garment my great grandparents, union. T my great grandmother yeah. too. Yeah. 
So, so she was like lefty union lefty, but right. to the extent that, you know, she was a Catholic and she liked John F. Kennedy because he was a Catholic. And so, you know, yeah. she had like her, her political, um, her political education comes out of a, a third grade education, right? She could basically read and write in Spanish, oh, but you know, right. it was limited. Um, and my mom is an even weirder case because she was raised by nuns until mm. she was 14. And so her politics are just like, she's like liberal kind of left, but not really left. Yeah. My dad was a much more difficult case because he was sort of weirdly atheist and Muslim and he had weird politics when he was younger. And yeah, I don't know. I can't really describe what they were. I don't think it actually came from my parent, but, but my dad was an immigrant. And so I was very aware of the rest of the world, which right. most young girls living in Southern California in the eighties weren't. So yeah. that was probably why I was such a major UN nerd. Um, because I came from this mixed background and, you know, I had Farsi and Spanish. And yeah, I was going to ask, you speak Farsi and Spanish or? No, but, but I had it like, you know, constantly around. Yeah. My parents wouldn't allow me to speak any foreign languages oh, in the wow. house because they didn't, both of them had accents and right. they didn't want me to have an accent. So what did they speak? English together? <laughs> I mean, to each other. Bad English. Okay, yeah. <laughs> really bad English, actually. My mom, you know, was kind of a New Yorkerian, so she right. had a really broad Brooklyn accent, and my dad was really hard to understand. I, you know, they managed somehow to communicate, yeah. but there was also a big age difference between them. My my mom got married when she was eighteen, and my dad was already like twenty nine. So. Oh, okay. Oh, but for back, I thought you were going to tell me like he was forty or something. No, for back then, no, that yeah. wasn't such a huge age difference, no, but yeah. still, and it's, even now, you know, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. but it means that the generations on that side of my family are really, really short because my grandmother also had my mom when she was 18. Right. Yeah. And I have a younger brother who had his first kid when he was 18 or 19. And Got now it. his kids have kids when they're like 18 or 19. So my grandmother is the matriarch of right. five generations. Oh my right gosh. Now. So she's Jeez. a great, great, great grandmother or no, a great, great grandmother. She's a great, great grandmother. Wow. Yeah. That's really... It's pretty crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought when you were saying short generations, I thought you were like generations of shorter people. Because no, no, of the, I just no, mean then like I got the compacted length, yeah. generations. Right, compacted, yeah. yeah. In the sense yeah. that like when you when you have your kids really young. Of course. Yeah. Then right. they, then they, you know, the generation sort of stack up on top of yes. each other. Yeah. I come from the opposite because my, you know, I come from a psychiatrist dad and a uh, novelist, feminist uh, mom, like basically Woody Allen plot, <laughs> but my mom did grow up very working class. Um, but yeah, they just me and late, not later in life, I guess, but um, in their thirties. I'll leave it at that, which I guess when I was born was a little bit like in their in their milieu. And for you, I'm sure have the could access the uh, ethnographic uh, anthropological yeah. evidence. But it's an interesting uh, r range. But um, and anything else you want to make sure that we um, talk about anything you want to comment about, whether it's about, uh, you know, communism and sex or socialism, sex, what is to be done, so to speak, or Valentine's Day? Yeah. Well, God, there's so much to say. I mean, you know, the one thing that I, I want to say is that, you know, Valentine's Day is this huge commercial holiday. And I think I sent you this National Re oh, Retail yeah. Foundation report. $21.7 billion is what Americans are going to spend in 2021 on this holiday, which is, if you go to the World Bank website, I think there are like 70 countries that have a GDP of less than 20 so billion disgusting. a year. Jeez. So it's so obscenely commercial, right? Um, I would say... You know, I mean, whatever. I mean, you, you know, you can just dump on holidays as much as you want. But if it's, on the other hand, it's the kind of time, if people, if it means something to people, then like, why take it away from them? I, yeah. I mean, whatever. Like Santa. But, if you want to believe exactly. in Santa or romance, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Head. Yeah. Right. You know, you know, more power to you. But yeah. I would say that I think that, you know, one of the the lessons of, for me anyway, of, of thinking about romance differently. So it's a lot of this comes back to this essay, but essay by this woman, Alexandra Kollontai that I'm, I have this podcast about Oh yeah, called make way for winged arrows. And in that essay, I really, it's freely available online. You can find it. And she does a Marxist analysis of love. She does a sort of dialectical materialist reading of love. And, you know, it's, you know, it's a little challenging, but it's worth it. And it really sort of helps you understand that our definition of love is bound very intricately to the social and political relations within which we exist. And so, you know, the, the like sort of little sound bitey things that I would say is when we use words like, I'm going to spend some time with my 
significant other, we should say share. I'm going to share sometime, right? When Mm. we say I'm investing in this relationship, that's like a really capitalist way of talking about our relationship. Mm -hmm. So we should say like, I'm going to nurture this relationship today, or I'm going to, you know, pay some attention to this relationship today. When you break up- Pay attention. No, not pay. There you go. Another one. Yeah. So nurture, it's, it's hard to know, get rid of yeah. this language. Right. Um, when you break up and you know, you, you, you're like, you're going back out on the market. Think about oh, that yeah, word. Gosh, I'm on the market. Right. Like I'm a good that I'm selling. Mm-hmm. So, so is there a way of saying like, I'm making myself available? I don't know. I mean, I right. just think we should think about the language that we use when we talk about romance and, and I mean, and, and to, to decommodify ourselves, right? Like why, why think of ourselves as commodities? I mean, we have to do mm-hmm. that during the day, right? We have to do that. And I've just been reading Sarah Jaffe's wonderful oh, new yeah. book, Love, uh, what is it called? Work Won't Love You Back. Yeah. Big yeah, plug for Sarah okay. Jaffe's book. Um, and, you know, she really says we have to know what work is. And I think she quotes Federici on this. We have to know wor- what work is so that we can, you know, really love properly in our lives. I'm paraphrasing here. But I do think, you know, we should not allow the economic system within which we live to completely commodify our attention and our affections and our emotions. Not, I mean, there's, this is not a moral or normative judgment. I'm just saying if we can be cognizant of the the moments when we're not in the market, like when we're going to bed at night or when we're taking Mm -hmm. a shower, you know, to the extent that we can remove ourselves from the market occasionally in this crazy world where the market is trying to penetrate into their there double is. entendre there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the market is trying to like seep into every single crevice of our lives. Um, we, <laughs> it's impossible to get away from this yeah. language. <laughs> but like, tr- like we are not commodities. We are autonomous human beings, you know, independent, socially embedded, but valuable independent of our market worth. So in Marxism, there's this really wonderful distinction between use value and exchange value. And when I teach this concept to my students, I always tell them, you have use value independent of your exchange value. You are living in a society that wants you to think that you are your exchange value. And that is what is alienating you. And that is what is making you feel lonely and disconnected. Mm -hmm. But if you can stop for a second and understand, I mean, I, I, I hate using this kind of, you know, overtly Marxist jargon, but it's really important to understand the distinction between those two things because you are not a commodity. You are a person. And yes, you're embedded in this wider social world that is, you know, commodified and commercialized in all sorts of ways, but you don't necessarily only exist within that milieu. You can pull yourself out and we should think consciously about moments when we can. I know that it's not always easy, but I think that if we become collectively more aware of those moments, I think we will be happier. We will feel our lives less commercialized and less commodified. Yeah. Great. Jack, any final questions from you? Or this has anyone? been fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, it really has been good to talk to you. And yeah, this is uh, uh, what a fascinating whole thing. I, you know, uh, life would be better. Life would be better if we could uh, break out of this horrendous system someday. <laughs> well, how are you going to apply this to your relationship, Jack? Me and my relationship? Uh, well, I'm already embarrassed because I went and bought $20 flowers today, and I helped contribute to the uh, GDP of a small nation being spent today. Uh, right. So, you know, I think what I'm going to do after this is uh, take the flowers and go throw them in the trash and tell my wife uh, <laughs> we can't be commodifying our relationship yeah. like this. You should take a video of yourself burning the flower, the bouquet with a lighter and be like, I did this for you because I really I care this, about you. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I know you're better Kate. than yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. The best, way to, the, be- the best way to handle this is to say, Extreme you know, value. if it weren't for the pandemic, I would have, you know, gone out and picked these from a garden right. somewhere. sustainable, you know, um, contributing to the local economy owned by a co-op or whatever. But because of the evil pandemic and this evil system, I had to go out and actually buy them with hard currency. (laughs) And so it is not the The ideal pandemic. I wish I could be out there getting my hands all cut on flowers and shit. God damn it. I hate it. (laughs) One of the worst things about the pandemic is probably how it limits my flower picking abilities. Um, Well, this is great. And what are you working on uh, next? Um, so I have a couple of, of projects. Um, I'm, I am interested in the, um, utopian, uh, ideologies around personal life. So actually going back and looking from Plato 
Um, Plato is really interesting. He's a kind of a proto-communist who really thought hmm. that his guardians should have um, collective property and have relationships in common with each other and their wives, right? Um, it, a lot of people don't realize that Plato was pretty radical in this respect. And then like looking at books like the original book Utopia by Thomas More or Tommaso Campanella's City of the Sun, I'm really interested in sort of tracing utopian theories all the way to the utopian socialists, obviously in um, 19th century Europe, and then to the Soviet Union Eastern uh, in the Eastern Bloc, but then also looking at sort of alternative hedonisms, Kate Sorper's new book, mm. and uh, different discussions, different futurisms, Afrofuturism. So oh, yeah. all of these different discourses, often they tend to focus on changes that we can make in the public sphere. So things um, you know, tweaks that we can do, like Aaron Bastani's, uh, what is it, Fully Automated Luxury Communism. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've read that book. He talks mm -hmm. about like solar power and asteroid yeah, mining yeah. and all these things. Or Rutger Bregman's book, um, Utopia for Realists. They're, 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 they're tweaks that we can make in the public sphere. And I'm really interested in the history of utopian theories as they were applied to the private sphere. Um, because that's a big story that very few people really think about, is that there are these other other narratives and discourses that are out there. So that's one thing. And the other thing that I'm really interested in is girls and, and science and socialism. Mm. So to the extent that we have really wonderful empirical evidence that girls in the Eastern Bloc um, have a less of a gap with boys on uh, standardized mathematics tests mm. and that there are a lot more engineers and scientists in the East, like how did they manage to overcome these gender stereotypes? Like what was it about socialist education in sciences and engineering and technology that allow even 30 years after the fall, a new generation of women to go into these fields that are still so incredibly heavily masculinized in the United States. Right. That to me is a really interesting question. So those are kind of two things that I'm thinking about a lot awesome. these days. And just remind people where they can find your podcast, um, what yeah. the podcast is. And also someone wants to know the the name of the book you recommended, but you recommended a couple. So, so the, uh, I I don't know which one. Yeah, but maybe Sarah Jaffe's book was yeah, the one probably, that I said yeah. that I that was the, the yeah, specific the book plug, recommendation. Yeah. It's called um, "Work Won't Love You Back." It just came out. Um, it's it's a really it's a really interesting read. Uh, sort of thinking about work and the kind of tech hegemony of capitalism teaching us that we have to love our jobs even though we're being exploited. It's a, it's a really well right. um, thought out argument. Uh, so the podcast is called AK Forty Seven, which is Alexandra Kollontai Forty Seven works of hers. And I read them and I discuss them. I mean, it's sort of a nerdy thing. It's a kind of very text-based thing, but it is a, it's fun. We have good discussions about like what, how we can apply some of these early socialist feminist writings to the 21st century. And that's at ak47.buzzsprout.com. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, uh, my books, if you go to my website, you can see it there. The All my books are listed on the website and you can, you know, they're quite, you know, most of them are academic, but the, the two, there are a couple that are less academic and that are more accessible to, to general audiences. Red Hangover is a series of essays reflecting on these, um, 20, the, the sort of last 20, 30 years of legacies of communism. And then obviously why women have better sex under socialism and other arguments for economic independence. Right. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And come back. Yes, it was fun. This yeah, is like really fun. really fun. Yeah. Oh, so happy Valentine's Day for whatever it's for. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. You too. Uh, good talking to you. Okay. Bye, Kristen. Bye-bye. Thank you. That was great. That was great. What a what a great talk. Seriously. Great, such great a smart, talk. smart Such a smart person. person. Yeah. So smart. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I feel guilty about, you know, spending money on the flowers, but it's okay. It's all right. Don't. Yeah. I mean, you can't buy into those myths, Jack. You just you know, got I didn't buy a card. You know, I didn't right. buy a Hallmark card. But you bought into the myth. I'm trying to use all the things. What else could we use? You, you have did. to pay attention. Oh, right. I have to. I can't. I can't pay attention. I have to spend attention. No, I have put to. In. Do the work. Uh, oh, work. Yes. I have to do the, do put the, in the work. work. Yeah, Can yeah, we no. say that? Hold the I space. Hold the space. I, is I not... have to give my wife a salary of love. God damn. Damn it. What the fuck? This is not making any sense. Uh, I have to spend time with the gold digger. I mean, with my partner. <laughs> uh, uh, what else? What else? Uh, um, yeah, what, what are we supposed to say? We're supposed to say I, I you're supposed to spend because it's like I immediately want to go to spend time. It's like right. I, I want to share time. Share time. Yeah. I want to share time or span time. Isn't that what they said in Buffalo 66? Even though span, he's super problematic. I think so. Let's span time. Yeah. Span also, time. um, you know the word, I think we, t I think I, I, I probably one of the many moments I do this, I start to make a point that I get distracted, but the Spanish right. word for why wife 
or wives mm-hmm. is handcuffs, esposas. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Which is interesting because I think a lot of people who speak Spanish as a first language or, you know, yeah. two don't realize that only because like when you learn, you don't you don't realize it when you're not learning it as a foreign language. It's just like, that's the word for these things. And that's the word for the and thing that a, at yeah, the altar. A, yeah, it's a uh, what the hell are those called? They're called uh, when one word. Nah, I can't. I can't think yeah. of it. There's a word. Yeah. Uh, there's a the word for that. An anagram, not an anagram. But your hands whatever. are tied right now. Forget your tongue it. is tied. Your hand is tied like like a pair of wives. Homophone. Homophones. I, there's no place for that on this show. No Jack. wait, Homonyms. Homonyms. <laughs> wait, homographs. Homogro. Homoglobe. It's one of them. Yeah. It's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a, th- we don't we do not tolerate homo homophonia. Yeah. Homophonia. No, no, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Homophone, someone said. Um, what's ad hominem mean then? If that's the if that's the truth, ad hominem is when you're. Uh, I mean, it's a personalized. It's, it's what, a, it's what, a, it's what a Reddit person yells at you when you're having an argument online. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, last week I we, love ad hominems. By the way, you know, I, I I did a short tour, Katie, where I went on some of the debate guys shows with YouTube people, oh. and all I did was ad hominems at all times. It's <laughs> like it's what. what I, because I went on the guy's destiny. This guy destiny oh, is yeah. awful, or what? I hate this fucking guy. And all he wants to do is like have serious debates over the stupidest shit. And all I did was go on to insult him directly to his face over and over again. And here's my favorite thing to do, Katie, is if you go on a debate person show and then you do ad hominems on them and then they insult you back. I like to go ad hom. That's an ad hominem. What you just did was an ad hominem. <laughs> that sounds. I'm good. like, wow. You have to resort to ad hominems. You <laughs> right. actually have to resort to ad hominems. That's really. How do they respond? <laughs> they hate it. They none of the debate guys like me, and I still get nothing but mean comments on my uh, YouTube channel. Well, but who you gives know a that shit? Is. That's an ad hominem. Yeah. Who cares? Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review us and subscribe to the show. And also, please consider becoming Patreon supporters at Patreon.com/slash The Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is produced by Nick Palm, edited by Brad Bloom. Our intern is Maria Trujillo, and our theme song is by the band Cordoba. 